Chapters 31 and 32 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 31. With the masters, Ernest was ere long in absolute disgrace. He had more liberty now than he had known heretofore. The heavy hand and watchful eye of Theobald were no longer about his path, and about his bed, and spying out all his ways. And punishment, by way of copying out lines of Virgil, was a very different thing from the savage beatings of his father. The copying out, in fact, was often less trouble than the lesson. Latin and Greek had nothing in them which commended them to his instinct as likely to bring him peace even at the last. Still less did they hold out any hope of doing so within some more reasonable time. The deadness inherent in these defunct languages themselves had never been artificially counteracted by a system of bona fide rewards for application. There had been any amount of punishments for want of application, but no good comfortable bribes had baited the hook which was to allure him to his good. Indeed, the more pleasant side of learning to do this or that had always been treated as something with which Ernest had no concern. We had no business with pleasant things at all, at any rate very little business, at any rate not he, Ernest. We were put into this world not for pleasure, but duty, and pleasure had in it something more or less sinful in its very essence. If we were doing anything we liked, we, or at any rate he, Ernest, should apologize and think he was being very mercifully dealt with, if not at once told to go and do something else. With what he did not like, however, it was different. The more he disliked a thing, the greater the presumption was it was right. It never occurred to him that the presumption was in favor of the rightness of what was most pleasant and that the onus of proving that it was not right lay with those who disputed its being so. I have said more than once that he believed in his own depravity. Never was there a little mortal more ready to accept without cavil whatever he was told by those who were in authority over him. He thought, at least, that he believed it, for as yet he knew nothing of that other earnest that dwelt within him and was so much stronger and more real than the earnest of which he was conscious. The dumb earnest persuaded with inarticulate feelings too swift and sure to be translated into such debatable things as words, but practically insisted as follows. Growing is not the easy plain sailing business that it is commonly supposed to be. It is hard work, harder than any but a growing boy can understand. It requires attention, and you are not strong enough to attend to your bodily growth, and to your lessons, too. Besides, Latin and Greek are great humbug. The more people know of them, the more odious they generally are. The nice people whom you delight in either never knew any at all, or forgot what they had learned as soon as they could. They never turned to the classics after they were no longer forced to read them. Therefore, they are nonsense all very well in their own time and country, but out of place here. 
never learn anything until you find you have been made uncomfortable for a good long while by not knowing it. When you find that you have occasion for this or that knowledge, or foresee that you will have occasion for it shortly, the sooner you learn it the better. But till then, spend your time in growing bone and muscle. These will be much more useful for you than Latin and Greek, nor will you ever be able to make them if you do not do so now, whereas Latin and Greek can be acquired at any time by those who want them. You are surrounded on every side by lies which would deceive even the elect, if the elect were not generally so uncommonly wide awake. The self of which you are conscious, your reasoning and reflecting self, will believe these lies and bid you act in accordance with them. This conscious self of yours, Ernest, is a prig begotten of prigs and trained in priggishness. I will not allow it to shape your actions, though it will doubtless shape your words for many a year to come. Your papa is not here to beat you now. This is a change in the conditions of your existence, and should be followed by changed actions. Obey me, your true self, and things will go tolerably well with you. But only listen to that outward and visible old husk of yours which is called your father, and I will rend you in pieces even unto the third and fourth generation, as one who has hated God. For I, Ernest, am the God who made you. How shocked Ernest would have been if he could have heard the advice he was receiving! What consternation, too, there would have been at Battersby! But the matter did not end here, for this same wicked inner self gave him bad advice about his pocket-money, the choice of his companions, and on the whole Ernest was attentive and obedient to its behests, more so than Theobald had been. The consequence was that he learned little, his mind growing more slowly, and his body rather faster than heretofore, and when by and by his inner self urged him in directions where he met obstacles beyond his strength to combat, he took though with passionate compunctions of conscience, the nearest course to the one from which he was debarred which circumstances would allow. It may be guessed that Ernest was not the chosen friend of the more sedate and well-conducted youths then studying at Roughborough. Some of the less desirable boys used to go to public houses and drink more beer than was good for them. Ernest's inner self can hardly have told him to ally himself with these young gentlemen. But he did so at an early age, and was sometimes made pitiably sick by an amount of beer which would have produced no effect upon a stronger boy. Ernest's inner self must have interposed at this point and told him that there was not much fun in this, for he dropped the habit ere it had taken firm hold of him, and never resumed it but he contracted another at a disgracefully early age of between thirteen and fourteen, which he did not relinquish. Though to the present day his conscious self keeps dinging it into him that the less he smokes, the better. And so matters went on till my hero was nearly fourteen years old. If by that time he was not actually a young blackguard, he belonged to a debatable class between the sub-reputable and the upper disreputable, 
with perhaps rather more leaning to the latter except so far as vices of meanness were concerned, from which he was fairly free. I gather this partly from what Ernest has told me, and partly from his school bills, which I remember Theobald showed me with much complaining. There was an institution at Roughborough called the Monthly Merit Money. The maximum sum which a boy of Ernest's age could get was four shillings and six pence. Several boys got four shillings, and few less than six pence. But Ernest never got more than half a crown, and seldom more than eighteen pence. His average would, I should think, be about one and nine pence, which was just too much for him to rank among the downright bad boys, but too little to put him among the good ones. Chapter 32 I must now return to Miss Alethea Pontifex, of whom I have said perhaps too little hitherto, considering how great her influence upon my hero's destiny proved to be. On the death of her father, which happened when she was about thirty-two years old, she parted company with her sisters, between whom and herself there had been little sympathy, and came up to London. She was determined, so she said, to make the rest of her life as happy as she could, and she had clearer ideas about the best way of setting to work to do this than women, or indeed men, generally have. Her fortune consisted, as I have said, of five thousand pounds which had come to her by her mother's marriage settlements, and fifteen thousand pounds left her by her father, over both which sums she had now absolute control. These brought her in about nine hundred pounds a year, and the money being invested in none but the soundest securities, she had no anxiety about her income. She meant to be rich, so she formed a scheme of expenditure which involved an annual outlay of about five hundred pounds, and determined to put the rest by. "'If I do this,' she said laughingly, "'I shall probably just succeed in living comfortably within my income.' In accordance with this scheme she took unfurnished apartments in a house in Gower Street, of which the lower floors were to let out as offices. John Pontifex tried to get her to take a house to herself, but Alethea told him to mind his own business so plainly that he had to beat a retreat. She had never liked him, and from that time dropped him almost entirely. Without going much into society, she yet became acquainted with most of the men and women who had attained a position in the literary, artistic, and scientific worlds, and it was singular how highly her opinion was valued, in spite of her never having attempted in any way to distinguish herself. She could have written if she had chosen, but she enjoyed seeing others write, and encouraging them better than taking a more active part herself. Perhaps literary people liked her all the better, because she did not write. I, as she very well knew, had always been devoted to her, and she might have had a score of other admirers if she had liked, but she had discouraged them all, and railed at matrimony as women seldom do, unless they have a comfortable income of their own. She by no means, however, railed at man as she railed at matrimony and though living after a fashion in which even the most censorious could find nothing to complain of, as far as she properly could, she defended those of her own sex 
whom the world condemned most severely. In religion she was, I should think, as nearly a free thinker as anyone could be whose mind seldom turned upon the subject. She went to church, but disliked equally those who erred either religion or irreligion. I remember once hearing her press a late well-known philosopher to write a novel instead of pursuing his attacks upon religion. The philosopher did not much like this, and dilated upon the importance of showing people the folly of much that they pretended to believe. She smiled and said demurely, Have they not Moses and the prophets? Let them hear them. But she would say a wicked thing quietly on her own account sometimes, and called my attention once to a note in her prayer book which gave account of the walk to Emmaus with the two disciples, and how Christ had said to them, O oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, the all being printed in small capitals. Though scarcely on terms with her brother John, she had kept up closer relations with Theobald and his family, and had paid a few days' visit to Battersby once in every two years or so. Alethea had always tried to like Theobald and join forces with him as much as she could, for they too were the hares of the family, the rest being all hounds. But it was no use. I believe her chief reason for maintaining relations with her brother was that she might keep an eye on his children and give them a lift if they proved nice. When Miss Pontifex had come down to Battersby in old times, the children had not been beaten, and their lessons had been made lighter. She easily saw that they were overworked and unhappy, but she could hardly guess how all-reaching was the regime under which they lived. She knew she could not interfere effectually then, and wisely forbore to make too many inquiries. Her time, if ever it were to come, would be when the children were no longer living under the same roof as their parents. It ended in her making up her mind to have nothing to do with either Joey or Charlotte, but to see so much of Ernest as should enable her to form an opinion about his disposition and abilities. He had now been a year and a half at Roughborough, and was nearly fourteen years old, so that his character had begun to shape. His aunt had not seen him for some little time, and thinking that if she was to exploit him she could do so now perhaps better than at any other time, she resolved to go down to Roughborough on some pretext which should be good enough for Theobald, and to take stock of her nephew under circumstances in which she could get him for some few hours to herself. Accordingly, in August 1849, when Ernest was just entering on his fourth half-year, a cab drove up to Dr. Skinner's door with Miss Pontifex, who asked and obtained leave for Ernest to come and dine with her at the Swan Hotel. She had written to Ernest to say she was coming, and he was, of course, on the lookout for her. He had not seen her for so long that he was rather shy at first, but her good nature soon set him at ease. She was so strongly biased in favor of anything young, that her heart warmed toward him at once, though his appearance was less prepossessing than she had hoped. She took him to a cake-shop and gave him whatever he liked as soon as she had got him off the school premises, and Ernest felt at once that she contrasted favorably even with his aunts the Mrs. Allaby, who were so very sweet and good. 
the Mrs. Allaby were very poor. Sixpence was to them what five shillings was to Alethea. What chance had they against one who, if she had a mind, could put by out of her income twice as much as they, poor women, could spend? The boy had plenty of prattle in him when he was not snubbed, and Alethea encouraged him to chatter about whatever came uppermost. He was always ready to trust anyone who was kind to him. It took many years to make him reasonably wary in this respect, if indeed, as I sometimes doubt, he will ever be as wary as he ought to be. And in a short time he had quite dissociated his aunt from his papa and mamma and the rest, with whom his instinct told him he should be on his guard. Little did he know how great, as far as he was concerned, were the issues that depended upon his behavior. If he had known, he would perhaps have played his part less successfully. His aunt drew from him more details of his home and school life than his papa and mamma would have approved of, but he had no idea that he was being pumped. She got out of him all about the happy Sunday evenings and how he and Joey and Charlotte quarreled sometimes but she took no side and treated everything as though it were a matter of course. Like all the boys, he could mimic Dr. Skinner, and when warmed with dinner and two glasses of sherry which made him nearly tipsy, he favored his aunt with samples of the doctor's manner and spoke of him familiarly as Sam. Sam, he said, is an awful old humbug. It was the sherry that brought out this piece of swagger, for whatever else he was, Dr. Skinner was a reality to Master Ernest, before which, indeed, he sank into his boots in no time. Alethea smiled and said, "'I must not say anything to that, must I?' Ernest said, "'I suppose not,' and was checked. By and by he vented a number of small, second-hand priggishnesses, which he had caught up believing them to be the correct thing, and made it plain that even at that early age, Ernest believed in Ernest, with a belief which was amusing from its absurdity. His aunt judged him charitably, as she was sure to do. She knew very well where the priggishness came from, and seeing that the string of his tongue had been loosened sufficiently, gave him no more sherry. It was after dinner, however, that he completed the conquest of his aunt. She then discovered that, like herself, he was passionately fond of music, and that, too, of the highest class. He knew and hummed or whistled to her all sorts of pieces out of the works of the great masters, which a boy of his age could hardly be expected to know, and it was evident that this was purely instinctive inasmuch as music received no kind of encouragement at Roughborough. There was no boy in the school as fond of music as he was. He picked up his knowledge, he said, from the organist of St. Michael's Church, who used to practice sometimes on a weekday afternoon. Ernest had heard the organ booming away as he was passing outside the church, and had sneaked inside and up into the organ loft. In the course of time the organist became accustomed to him as a familiar visitant, and the pair became friends. It was this which decided Alethea that the boy was worth taking pains with. He likes the best music, she thought, and he hates Dr. Skinner. 
this is a very fair beginning. When she sent him away at night with a sovereign in his pocket, and he had only hoped to get five shillings, she felt as though she had had a good deal more than her money's worth for her money. End of chapter 32 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman